You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of our Lord. Today we finally reach the end of Matthew chapter 5. And as we have noted, you know, sometimes the chapter breaks don't always happen at exactly the right time. It happened a few times in the book of Galatians where the chapter break is kind of mid-thought. But it is perfect on this section as this is kind of the last section of this bringing clarity set, uh, series that we've been doing where Jesus is bringing clarity to the law, describing what really is scriptural and what was just man-made tradition, that wheat and the chaff that just blows away, that doesn't have real grounding that, uh, that Brother Mike taught about last week. Um, where next ch- the, the next chapter really begins a wonderful practical session about what it's like to be a Christian. What, what is it now like now that we are in Christ? That we are now citizens of this heavenly kingdom? How are we to pray? How are we to give? How are we to conduct ourselves? It really begins beautifully next chapter. But this conclusion to chapter 5 is just the masterful climax of Jesus' teaching on the law and and what it means to fulfill it. And at the ultimate conclusion of that is this line, to love your enemies. It's the ultimate realization of these truths. And you know, people ask all the time, what makes Christianity unique amongst world religions? And this is one of the answers you can give, to love your enemies. No other religion or worldview expects its followers to love those who hate them, to pray for those who persecute them, with absolutely no expectation of reward or reciprocity in return. To love others for the sake of loving others is very unique to biblical Christianity. Jesus wants those in his kingdom to be different and to defy traditional expectations. Now, it really is the ultimate fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, isn't it? To love your neighbor as yourself. What could be a greater way to love your neighbor than your, as yourself than to even love your enemies? Now, some of you remember when we covered this briefly, when we covered uh, the Good Samaritan sometime last year. Um, And there we learned your neighbor isn't the guy next door to you, nor is he just your friends and your family or your fellow countrymen, but it's anyone who's in need. Even if it's somebody who you would traditionally consider an enemy, like the Jews and the Samaritans at that time. And more importantly, the emphasis was not on who do I have to be a neighbor to, or who is my neighbor, but... Who can I be a neighbor to was really the thrust of that. 
And I'm glad that Brother Mike mentioned that last week. It really is the foundation of where we're going today. Because, again, the greatest ex- uh, expression of loving your neighbor as yourself is loving your enemies. So let's take a closer look at this. Verse 43, it says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, that those two verses really highlight the extreme danger of adding to Scripture. As we, talk, as we discussed, this is the conclusion of that bringing clarity to the law section. Because... The Bible does tell us to love our neighbor in Scripture. It does not tell us to hate our enemies. That was a tradition that was grafted in by the other uh, rabbis and teachers at the time. Confusing passages in the Old Testament of God's hatred for nations who were doing horrible things. Confusing that for our expectation for how we are to relate to others. There's a danger when we equate what the scripture says and our opinions. When you start equating those two, you end up with legalism. You end up with the very things Jesus was teaching against. You know, I remember when I was a fairly new Christian in college, you know, there were a lot of extra-biblical legalistic tendencies amongst people my age. Certain things about, well, you're a Christian, you have to believe this thing politically now. Oh, you're a Christian. You have to believe, you know, you have to conduct yourself this way for dating relationships or whatever it was. And yeah, there's principles to govern both of those spheres. But to equate your application of Scripture with the Scripture itself, you're setting yourself up for a fall. That's a dangerous bridge. But moving forward, I find it amazing that Jesus asks us to pray for our enemies as well. Not just to have a a positive feeling towards them, but to take an action, the action of prayer towards them. And let me tell you guys, you change when you pray for your enemies. They don't always. That's between them and God. But you change when you go before the Lord and pray for those who are, you would consider your enemy. You become less bitter. You become more loving. You become more able to seek their good rather than, than allowing bitterness to set in. I've been there. You know, when, when you pray for that coworker who's making your life miserable, that person that got a promotion that you deserved, that family member that has caused such division, when you pray for that person... Something happens. Sometimes with them, but it immediately changes within you. It's hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. God has a way of convicting you when you do that. We ought not to underestimate that point. But why else should we pray? Jesus tells us as much directly in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father, who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, I actually prefer the, the New Living Translation, how it renders verse 45, as it really grabs the meaning of the text, where it says, In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. 
It, 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 I like that because it focuses in on that we don't pray for our enemies to become, to become sons of our Father. We pray for our enemies because we are sons of our Father. We, we don't, the things that we do as Christians aren't because we're striving to attain a position with God. The things that we do are because we have a position before God, granted to us by His grace. It's the same we have to and we get to differential that I wrote about in the Open Door article, if you guys got a chance to read that. And so how is this uh, making us like our Father in heaven? Well, as the verse says, because God makes the sun rise and the rain fall on the just and on the unjust. I'm sure that you guys have noticed, you know, before you became a Christian, things weren't dark all the time. The sun still rose on you. The rain still fell. Good things still happened in your life before you became a Christian. God still does good things to everyone, even if you don't love him in return. It's a complicated theological term called common grace, which is what that means. God is good to everyone, shows a measure of his grace to all mankind, whether you believe in him or not. And that's what he does with the sun rising and the, the rain falling. And what, Paul is, what, what Jesus is driving at is that we do the same thing when we love and pray for our enemies. In that way, by being good Samaritans to our enemies and praying for them, we are being just like our Father in heaven, who is good to the just and the unjust, the evil and the righteous. We are partaking in the the nature of who God is when we do that. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. Again, the, the emphasis that we should be so different as Christians that people should look at us and be like, there is something about those Christians. that They, they, they don't have the same values as we do. They, 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 when everyone is fighting over resources, they're giving theirs away. When everyone is being bitter and fighting over the most minute details online these days, we have a unity. What's up with those Christians over on Broadway? That's what God's calling us to be. And that's what God's common grace allows us to do when we share that with others. Because if we don't act like that, then we're not that much different than the world is. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you only greet the, your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? It you see the point. It's, it's, it's confusing the analogy Jesus wants us to have for his church. You know, it's been said that there are actually five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people won't read the first four. It's our job to deliver the Gospel that we've been given. To, so that others will see us. To see that light that is within us. And when we fill our prayer lists with our enemies and we pray for those whom we have disagreements with you know we're showing them that we're living by something different that we're living for another kingdom not just the things of this world we they see a message being communicated by our actions a message in harmony with the gospel 
the message of what Jesus has done for us, which I'll address in just one second. But Jesus concludes this section with one last line, saying, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And an obvious echo and rephrasing of the prominent theme of Galatians, be holy. Uh, did I say Galatians? I meant Leviticus. Leviticus, the prominent theme there where it says, be holy, for I am holy. Reminding us that the standard is too high for any of us to attain. None of us do this. Not perfectly. You know, yes, we let our light shine, but sometimes we often hide it under that basket, don't we? We, we try to be salt and light to this earth, but we lose our saltiness going to the beginning of this uh, sermon. We lose those things. We all fall short. And much like the theme of Leviticus, it's a reminder that we need a Savior to fulfill this law for us. Again, that's the big theme of this section, how Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And the way that he fulfilled the idea of to love his enemies is perhaps the most unique. I mean, yes, Jesus on the cross certainly loved his enemies who were crucifying him, where as he's hanging and dying, praying to the Father, again, modeling prayer for us, saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's loving your enemies. But it gets more profound than that. Follow with me for a second, church. You were God's enemies before you knew Christ. That's a sobering thought. Romans 5.10, you know, this is from our first reading this morning. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But he makes it clear, while before we knew Christ, we were his enemies. When was the last time you considered yourself to be God's enemy before you became a Christian? That's a deep thought. That may, perhaps contrary to our perceived notion of things, we weren't neutral before coming to Christ. Whether we could articulate it or not, we were part of the world's rebellion against God. Rebellion against his lordship. Rebellion against his institutions. Rebellion against his desires for life and what life is all about. We were in rebellion against all these things. We were, part, we were joining in the ranks of billions of others. Shaking our fists at the sky saying, I did it my way, Lord. And yes, perhaps we weren't as militant in our rebellion as famous atheists like Richard Dawkins going on TV mocking the Christian faith. Yeah, that's perhaps not been most of our experiences. But just because a general in an army isn't as committed as a soldier doesn't mean they're not marching in the same ranks. And James 4.4 4 says as much that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And as we begin to ponder these things, we begin to understand why our sins are such a big deal. I mean, there is no greater crime you can commit against a country than treason. And guys, our, we have committed divine treason. 
let's put let's put it in terms. It's the Fourth of July right now. Our forefathers knew when they founded this country, they better win this war that they're starting. Because if they lost, it would be the gallows for all of them. They understood this. That's why the consequences for sin is so high. Because the, the punishment for divine treason is hell. And as we've uncovered throughout this whole chapter, we've all earned our place there. We've all, you know, committed murder in our hearts through our anger. Committed adultery in our hearts through lust. We've all, we've all lied. We've all cheated. We've all stolen. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that Jesus loved his enemies. Where the beginning of our first reading this morning, Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the only reason why those of us who are Christians this morning can claim this closeness to God is because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. So, this is our model. The only reason why we could be close to God is because of that sacrifice. That Because he laid down his life, laying down great enough of a sacrifice to atone even for my most treasonous sins. And now we're able to say, as that scripture in Isaiah says, Isaiah 1.18, For though your sins be like scarlet, behold, they shall be made as white as snow. That is our model for loving our enemies. What Jesus has done for each one of us. You know, as we look at those who we would be prone to call our enemies, we must realize the only difference between us and them is the blood of Jesus Christ. Whether if it's somebody who wronged you, cheated you, stolen from you, did all kinds of evil against you, just remember that they are no less deserving of hell than we are. We've all learned our place there. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus. You know, I was reminded this week about uh, the son of Sam murderer, uh, David Berkowitz, who, though he committed absolutely horrible things in his lifetime, he, while in prison, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail atoning for what he, for what he has done on this side of eternity. But we're going to spend eternity with that man as a brother in Christ. As the sins that have, as the, as the blood that has washed away his sins has also washed away mine. And these truths of grace are exactly what this table is all about. Now, one of my favorite modern hymns is called Jesus, Thank You. It's from a group called Sovereign Grace Music. And the lyrics are just so beautiful. It says, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. 
Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Now, let's put this in perspective. Let's imagine a different world for a moment. Let's imagine where... Let's imagine where the Revolutionary Army lost, where we lost the war. George Washington is captured. Could you imagine him then, after committing this treason, as it would have been viewed, being brought before King George and being offered a seat at his table, becoming a brother, spending the rest of their lives together in close fellowship? It's hard to imagine. Largely because if King George was a nicer guy, we probably wouldn't have had that war. But I'm getting, I'm getting aside from my point. But if you belong to Christ this morning, and you're about to take communion with us, that's who we are. We are having communion with the person who we were formerly enemies of. Once the enemy of God and our sins, but Jesus has brought us near by taking the wrath we deserve to bear ourselves, that we can now freely eat at his table as children of God. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, let us meditate on those truths. And as we consider these things, we ought to have a moment of, what on earth am I doing here? I don't deserve this. I deserve everything but this. What am I doing here? And if you have that moment in your heart, then you understand grace. Because we don't deserve this. We don't. Thanks be to God for his grace, though, that invites us near to him and invites us a seat at, the God, at God's table of whom once was our enemy. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us continue our worship by affirming what we believe. Let us stand together for the Apostles' Creed as found in the back of our hymnals. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 